Part three of chapter thirteen of Equanimitas by Sir William Osler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Luke Sartor. Part three of chapter thirteen Medicine in the Nineteenth Century. Diphtheria since the discovery of the germ of this disease and our knowledge of the conditions of its transmission and the discovery of the antitoxin there has been a great reduction in its prevalence and an equally remarkable reduction in the mortality the more careful isolation of the sick the thorough disinfection of the clothing the rigid scrutiny of the milder cases of throat disorder a more stringent surveillance in the period of convalescence and the routine examination of the throats of school children these are the essential measures by which the prevalence of the disease has been very markedly diminished the great danger is in the mild cases in which the disease has perhaps not been suspected and in which the children may be walking about and even going to school such patients are often a source of widespread infection the careful attention given by mothers to teeth and mouth of children is also an important factor in children with recurring attacks of tonsillitis in whom the tonsils are enlarged the organs should be removed through these measures the incidence of the disease has been very greatly reduced pneumonia while there has been a remarkable diminution in the prevalence of a large number of all the acute infections one disease not only holds its own but seems even to have increased in its virulence in the mortality bills pneumonia is an easy second to tuberculosis indeed in many cities the death rate is now higher and it has become to use the phrase of bunyan the captain of the men of death it attacks particularly the intemperate the feeble and the old though every year a large number of robust healthy individuals succumb so frequent is pneumonia at advanced periods of life that to die of it has been said to be the natural end of old men in this country in many ways too it is a satisfactory disease if one may use such an expression it is not associated with much pain except at the onset the battle is brief and short and a great many old persons succumb to it easily and peacefully we know the cause of the disease we know only too well its symptoms but the enormous fatality from twenty to twenty five per cent speaks only too plainly of the futility of our means of cure and yet in no disease has there been so great a revolution in treatment the patient is no longer drenched to death with drugs or bled to a point where the resisting powers of nature are exhausted we are not without hope too that in the future an antidote may be found to the toxins of the disease and of late there have been introduced several measures of great value in supporting the weakness of the heart a special danger in the old and debilitated hydrophobia rabies a remarkable and in certain countries a widespread disease of animals 
when transmitted to man by the bite of rabid dogs, wolves, etc., is known as hydrophobia. The specific germ is unknown, but by a series of brilliant observations, Pasteur showed, one, that the poison has certain fixed and peculiar properties in connection with the nervous system, two, that susceptible animals could be rendered refractory to the disease, or incapable of taking it, by a certain method of inoculation, and three, that an animal unprotected and inoculated with a dose of the virus sufficient to cause the disease may, by the injection of proper antirabic treatment, escape. Supported by these facts, Pasteur began a system of treatment of hydrophobia in man, and a special institute was founded in Paris for the purpose. When carried out promptly, the treatment is successful in an immense majority of all cases, and the mortality in persons bitten by animals proved to be rapid, who have subsequently had the antirabic treatment, have been reduced to less than one-half per cent. The disease may be stamped out in dogs by careful quarantine of suspected animals, and by a thoroughly carried out muzzling order. Malaria among the most remarkable of modern discoveries is the cause of malarial fever, one of the great maladies of the world, and a prime obstacle to the settlement of Europeans in tropical regions. Until 1880, the cause was quite obscure. It was known that the disease prevailed chiefly in marshy districts in the autumn, and that the danger of infection was greatest in the evening and at night and that it was not directly contagious. In 1880, a French army surgeon, Laverin, discovered in the red blood corpuscles small bodies which have proven to be the specific germ of the disease. They are not bacteria, but little animal bodies resembling the amoeba, tiny little portions of protoplasm. The parasite in its earliest form is a small, clear, ring-shaped body inside the red blood corpuscle, upon which it feeds, gradually increasing in size and forming within itself blackish grains out of the colouring matter of the corpuscle. When the little parasite reaches a certain size, it begins to divide or multiply, and an enormous number of these breaking up at the same time give off poison in the blood, which causes the paroxysms of fever during what is known as the chill in the intermittent fever for example one can always find these dividing parasites several different forms of the parasites have been found corresponding to different varieties of malaria parasites of a very similar nature exist abundantly in birds ross an army surgeon in india found that the spread of this parasite from bird to bird was effected through the intervention of the mosquito. The parasites reach maturity in certain cells of the coats of the stomach of these insects, and develop into peculiar thread-like bodies, many of which ultimately reach the salivary glands, from which, as the insect bites, they pass with the secretion of the glands into the wound. From this as a basis, 
numerous observers have worked out the relation of the mosquito to malaria in the human subject briefly stated the disease is transmitted chiefly by certain varieties of the mosquito particularly the anopheles the ordinary culex which is present chiefly in the northern states does not convey the disease the anopheles sucks the blood from a person infected with malaria takes in a certain number of parasites which undergo development in the body of the insect the final outcome of which is numerous small thread-like structures which are found in numbers in the salivary glands from this point when the mosquito bites another individual they pass into his blood infect the system and in this way the disease is transmitted two very striking experiments may be mentioned the italian observers have repeatedly shown that anopheles which have sucked blood from patients suffering from malaria when sent to a non-malarial region and there allowed to bite perfectly healthy persons have transmitted the disease but a very crucial experiment was made a short time ago mosquitoes which had bitten malarial patients in italy were sent to london and there allowed to bite mr manson son of dr manson who really suggested the mosquito theory of malaria this gentleman had not lived out of england and there is no acute malaria in london he had been a perfectly healthy strong man in a few days following the bites of the infected mosquitoes he had a typical attack of malarial fever the other experiment though of a different character is quite as convincing in certain regions about rome in the campagna malaria is so prevalent that in the autumn almost everyone in the district is attacked particularly if he is a newcomer dr sambron and a friend lived in this district from june first to september first nineteen hundred the test was whether they could live in this exceedingly dangerous climate for the three months without catching malaria if they used stringent precautions against the bites of mosquitoes for this purpose the hut in which they lived was thoroughly wired and they slept with the greatest care under netting both of these gentlemen at the end of the period had escaped the disease the importance of these studies cannot be overestimated they explain the relation of malaria to marshy districts the seasonal incidence of the disease the nocturnal infection and many other hitherto obscure problems more important still they point out clearly the way by which malaria may be prevented first the recognition that any individual with malaria is a source of danger in a community so that he must be thoroughly treated with quinine secondly the importance of the draining of marshy districts and ponds in which the mosquitoes breed and thirdly that even in the most infected regions persons may escape the disease by living in thoroughly protected houses in this way escaping the bites of mosquitoes venereal diseases these continue to embarrass the social economist and to perplex and distress the profession 
the misery and ill health which they cause are incalculable and the pity of it is that the cross is not always borne by the offender but innocent women and children share the penalties the gonorrheal infection so common and often so little heeded is a cause of much disease in parts other than those first affected syphilis claims its victims in every rank of life at every age and in all countries we now treat it more thoroughly but all attempts to check its ravages have been fruitless physicians have two important duties the incessant preaching of continence to young men and scrupulous care in every case that the disease may not be a source of infection to others and that by thorough treatment the patient may be saved from the serious late nervous manifestations we can also urge that in the interests of public health venereal diseases like other infections shall be subject to supervision by the state the opposition to measures tending to the restriction of these diseases is most natural on the one hand from women who feel that it is an aggravation of a shocking injustice and wrong to their sex on the other from those who feel the moral guilt in a legal recognition of the evil it is appalling to contemplate the frightful train of miseries which a single diseased woman may entail not alone on her associates but on scores of the innocent whose bitter cry should make the opponents of legislation feel that any measures of restriction any measures of registration would be preferable to the present disgraceful condition which makes of some christian cities open brothels and allows the purest homes to be invaded by the most loathsome of all diseases leprosy since the discovery of the germ of this terrible disease systematic efforts have been made to improve the state of its victims and to promote the study of the conditions under which the disease prevails the english leprosy commission has done good work in calling attention to the widespread prevalence of the disease in india and in the east from this country leprosy has been introduced into san francisco by the chinese and into the northwestern states by the norwegians and there are foci of the disease in the southern states particularly louisiana and in the province of new brunswick the problem has an additional interest since the annexation of hawaii and the philippine islands in both of which places leprosy prevails extensively by systematic measures of inspection and the segregation of affected individuals the disease can readily be held in check it is not likely ever to increase among native americans or again gain such a foothold as it had in the middle ages pure peril fever perhaps one of the most striking of all victories of preventive medicine has been the almost total abolition of so-called childbed fever from the maternity hospitals and from private practice in many institutions the mortality after childbirth was five or six per cent indeed sometimes as high as ten per cent whereas today owing entirely to proper antiseptic precautions the mortality has fallen 
to three-tenths to four-tenths per cent. The recognition of the contagiousness of pure peril fever was the most valuable contribution to medical science made by Oliver Wendell Holmes. There had been previous suggestions by several writers, but his essay on the contagiousness of pure peril fever, published in 1843, was the first strong, clear, logical statement of the case. Samuel Weiss, a few years later, added the weight of a large practical experience to the side of the contagiousness, but the full recognition of the causes of the disease was not reached until the recent antiseptic views had been put into practical effect. The New School of Medicine The nineteenth century has witnessed a revolution in the treatment of disease and the growth of a new school of medicine. The old schools, regular and homeopathic, put their trust in drugs to give which was the alpha and the omega of their practice. For every symptom there were a score or more of medicines, vile, nauseous compounds in one case, bland, harmless dilutions in the other. The characteristic of the new school is firm faith in a few good, well-tried drugs, little or none in the great mass of medicines still in general use. Imperative drugging, the ordering of medicine in any and every malady, is no longer regarded as the chief function of the doctor. Naturally, when the entire conception of the disease was changed, there came a corresponding change in our therapeutics. In no respect is this more strikingly shown than in our present treatment of fever, say of the common typhoid fever. During the first quarter of the century, the patients were bled, blistered, purged and vomited, and dosed with mercury, antimony, and other compounds to meet special symptoms. During the second quarter, the same, with variations in different countries. After 1850, bleeding became less frequent, and the experiments of the Paris and Vienna schools began to shake the belief in the control of fever by drugs. During the last quarter, sensible doctors have reached the conclusion that typhoid fever is not a disease to be treated with medicines, but that in a large proportion of all cases, diet, nursing, and bathing meet the indications. There is active, systematic, careful, watchful treatment, but not with drugs. The public has not yet been fully educated to this point and medicines have sometimes to be ordered for the sake of their friends, and it must be confessed that there are still in the ranks antiques who would insist on a dose of some kind every few hours. The battle against polypharmacy, or the use of a large number of drugs, of the action of which we know little, yet we put them into bodies of the action of which we know less, has not been fought to a finish. There have been two contributing factors on the side of progress. The remarkable growth of the sceptical spirit, fostered by Paris, Vienna, and Boston physicians, and, above all, the valuable lesson of homeopathy, the infinitesimals of which certainly could not 
do harm, and quite as certainly could not do good, yet nobody has ever claimed that the mortality among homeopathic practitioners was greater than among those of the regular school. A new school of practitioners has arisen, which cares nothing for homeopathy, and less for so-called allopathy. It seeks to study, rationally and scientifically, the action of drugs, old and new. It is more concerned that a physician shall know how to apply the few great medicines which all have to use, such as quinine, iron, mercury, iodide of potassium, opium, and digitalis, than that he should employ a multiplicity of remedies, the action of which is extremely doubtful. The growth of scientific pharmacology, by which we now have many active principles instead of crude drugs, and the discovery of the art of making medicines palatable, have been of enormous aid in rational practice. There is no limit to the possibility of help from the scientific investigation of the properties and actions of drugs. At any day, the new chemistry may give to us remedies of extraordinary potency, and of as much usefulness as cocaine. There is no reason why we should not, even in the vegetable world, find for certain diseases specifics of virtue fully equal to that of quinine in the malarial fevers. One of the most striking characteristics of the modern treatment of disease is the return to what used to be called the natural methods. Diet, exercise, bathing, and massage. There probably never has been a period in the history of the profession when the value of diet in the prevention and cure of disease was more fully recognized. Dyspepsia, the besetting malady of this country, is largely due to improper diet, imperfectly prepared, and too hastily eaten. One of the great lessons to be learned is that the preservation of health depends in great part upon food well cooked and carefully eaten, a common cause of ruined digestion, particularly in young girls, is the eating of sweets between meals and the drinking of the abominations dispensed in the chemist's shops in the form of ice-cream sodas, etc. Another frequent cause of ruined digestion in businessmen is the hurried meal at the lunch counter. And a third factor, most important of all, illustrates the old maxim that more people are killed by overeating and drinking than by the sword. Sensible people have begun to realize that alcoholic excesses lead inevitably to impaired health. A man may take four or five drinks of whiskey a day, or even more, and thinks perhaps that he transacts his business better with that amount of stimulant. But it only too frequently happens that early in the fifth decade, just as business or political success is assured, Bacchus hands in heavy bills for payment, in the form of serious disease of the arteries or of the liver, or there is a general breakdown. With the introduction of light beer, there has been not only less intemperance, but a reduction in the number of cases of organic disease of the heart, liver, and stomach caused by alcohol.
while temperance in the matter of alcoholic drinks is becoming a characteristic of americans intemperance in the quantity of food taken is almost the rule adults eat far too much and physicians are beginning to recognize that the early degenerations particularly of the arteries and of the kidneys leading to bright's disease which were formerly attributed to alcohol are due in large part to too much food nursing perhaps in no particular does nineteenth-century practice differ from that of the preceding centuries more than in the greater attention which is given to the personal comfort of the patient and to all the accessories comprised in the art of nursing the physician has in the trained nurse an assistant who carries out his directions with a watchful care is on the lookout for danger signals and with accurate notes enables him to estimate the progress of a critical case from hour to hour the intelligent devoted women who have adopted the profession of nursing are not only in their ministrations a public benefaction but they lighten the anxieties which form so large a part of the load of the busy doctor massage and hydrotherapy have taken their places as most important measures of relief in many chronic conditions and the latter has been almost universally adopted as the only safe means of combating the high temperatures of the acute fevers within the past quarter of a century the value of exercise in the education of the young has become recognized the increase in the means of taking wholesome out-of-door exercise is remarkable and should show in a few years an influence in the reduction of the nervous troubles in young persons the prophylactic benefit of systematic exercise taken in moderation by persons of middle age is very great golf and the bicycle have in the past few years materially lowered the average incomes which doctors in this country derive from persons under forty from the senile contingent those above this age the average income has for a time been raised by these exercises as a large number of persons have been injured by taking up sports which may be vigorously pursued with safety only by those with young arteries of three departures in the art of healing brief mention may be made the use of the extracts of certain organs or of the organs themselves in disease is as old as the days of the romans but an extraordinary impetus has been given to the subject by the discovery of the curative powers of the extract of the thyroid gland in the diseases known as cretinism and myxedema the brilliancy of the results in these diseases has had no parallel in the history of modern medicine but it cannot be said that in the use of the extracts of other organs for disease the results have fulfilled the sanguine expectations of many there was not in the first place the same physiological basis and practitioners have used these extracts too indiscriminately and without sufficient knowledge of the subject secondly as i have already mentioned we possess a sure and certain hope that for many of the acute infections antitoxins will be found 
a third noteworthy feature in modern treatment has been a return to psychical methods of cure in which faith in something is suggested to the patient after all faith is the great lever of life without it man can do nothing with it even with a fragment as a grain of mustard seed all things are possible to him faith in us faith in our drugs and methods is the great stock in trade of the profession in one pan of the balance put the pharmacopoeias of the world all the editions from dioscorides to the last issue of the united states dispensatory heap them on the scales as did euripides his books in the celebrated contest in the frogs in the other put the simple faith with which from the days of the pharaohs until now the children of men have swallowed the mixtures these works describe and the bulky tomes will kick the beam it is the aurum potabile the touchstone of success in medicine as galen says confidence and hope do more good than physic he cures most in whom most are confident that strange compound of charlatan and philosopher paracelsus encouraged his patients to have a good faith a strong imagination and they shall find the effects while we doctors often overlook or are ignorant of our own faith cures we are just a wee bit too sensitive about those performed outside our ranks we have never had and cannot expect to have a monopoly in this panacea which is open to all free as the sun and which may make of every one in certain cases as was the lacedaemonian of homer's day a good physician out of nature's grace faith in the gods or in the saints cures one faith in little pills another hypnotic suggestion a third faith in a plain common doctor a fourth in all ages the prayer of faith has healed the sick and the mental attitude of the suppliant seems to be of more consequence than the powers to which the prayer is addressed the cures in the temples of esculapius the miracles of the saints the remarkable cures of those noble men the jesuit missionaries in this country the modern miracles at lourdes and at saint anne de Beauplay in quebec and the wonder workings of the so-called christian scientists are often genuine and must be considered in discussing the foundations of therapeutics we physicians use the same power every day if a poor lass paralyzed apparently helpless bedridden for years comes to me having worn out in mind body and estate a devoted family if she in a few weeks or less by faith in me and faith alone takes up her bed and walks the saints of old could not have done more saint annie and many others can scarcely to-day do less we enjoy i say no monopoly in the faith business the faith with which we work 
the faith indeed which is available today in everyday life has its limitations it will not raise the dead it will not put in a new eye in place of a bad one as it did to an iroquois indian boy for one of the jesuit fathers nor will it cure cancer or pneumonia or knit a bone but in spite of these nineteenth-century restrictions such as we find it faith is a most precious commodity without which we should be very badly off hypnotism introduced by mesmer in the eighteenth century has had several revivals as a method of treatment during the nineteenth century the first careful study of it was made by braid a manchester surgeon who introduced the terms hypnotism hypnotic and nervous sleep but at this time no very great measure of success followed its use in practice except perhaps in the case of an anglo-indian surgeon james s dale who prior to the introduction of anaesthesia had performed two hundred and sixty-one surgical operations upon patients in a state of hypnotic unconsciousness about eighteen eighty the french physicians particularly charcot and bernheim took up the study and since that time hypnotism has been extensively practised it may be defined as a subjective psychical condition which braid called nervous sleep resembling somnambulism in which as shakespeare says in the description of lady macbeth the person receives at once the benefit of sleep and does the effects or acts of watching or waking therapeutically the important fact is that the individual's natural susceptibility to suggestion is increased and this may hold after the condition of hypnosis has passed away the condition of hypnosis is usually itself induced by suggestion requesting the subject to close the eyes to think of sleep and the operator then repeats two or three times sentences suggesting sleep and suggesting that the limbs are getting heavy and that he is feeling drowsy during this state it has been found that the subjects are very susceptible to suggestion too much must not be expected of hypnotism and the claims which have been made for it have been too often grossly exaggerated it seems as it has been recently well put that hypnotism at best permits of making suggestions more effective for good or bad than can be done upon one in his waking state it is found to be of very little use in organic disease it has been helpful in some cases of hysteria in certain functional spasmodic affections of the nervous system in the vicious habits of childhood and in suggesting to the victims of alcohol and drugs that they should get rid of their inordinate desires it has been used successfully in certain cases for the relief of labor pains and in surgical operations but on the whole while a valuable agent in a few cases it has scarcely fulfilled the expectations of its advocates it is a practice not without serious dangers and should never be performed except in the presence of a third person while its indiscriminate employment by ignorant persons 
should be prevented by law. One mode of faith healing in modern days, which passes under the remarkable name of Christian science, is probably nothing more than mental suggestion under another name. The patient is told to be calm and is assured that all will go well, that he must try to aid the healer by believing that what is told him is true. The healer then, quietly but firmly, asserts and reiterates that there is no pain, no suffering, that it is disappearing, that relief will come, that the patient is getting well. This is precisely the method which Bernheim used to use with such success with his hypnotic patients at Nancy, iterating and reiterating in a most wearisome way that the disease would disappear and the patient would feel better. As has been pointed out by a recent writer, Dr. Harry Marshall, the chief basis for the growth of Christian science is that which underlies every popular fallacy. Oliver Wendell Holmes outlined very clearly the factors concerned, showing a. how easily abundant facts can be collected to prove anything whatsoever, b. how insufficient, exalted wisdom, immaculate honesty, and vast general acquirements are to prevent an individual from having the most primitive ideas upon subjects out of his line of thought, and finally, demonstrating the boundless credulity and excitability of mankind upon subjects connected with medicine. End of chapter 13 Medicine in the Nineteenth Century Recording by Luke Sartor Griffith, New South Wales, 2012